If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, listeners. Just a quick note before the podcast gets started today. At the moment, the IAI team are embarking on an exciting new podcast project. You might have seen it on our Twitter or social media feeds. It's called UniTalks. The point of this new project is to demystify university. What we're doing is taking students from underrepresented backgrounds right into the heart of top universities so that they can interview leading academics from a range of disciplines. We've done a couple of interviews already, and let's just say I had no idea that bananas contained antimatter. Now, to enable this project to go ahead, we really need your support. Maybe you have a niece, nephew, son or daughter about to apply to university. Maybe you've worked in education or with kids. Maybe you just enjoy our content. Whatever it is, we'd love for you to show your support by donating to our crowdfunder for this new project. And to do that, you can visit crowdfunder.co.uk and search UniTalks. That's U-N-I-T-A-L-K-S. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. If you're anything like me, you've probably heard of string theory, but unless you're a fundamental physicist, you probably don't understand how it actually works. In today's podcast, Professor of Philosophy of Science, James Ladyman, explains what string theory is, its place in the history of ideas, and why so many physicists have a hard time accepting string theory as scientific fact. Let me say something about string theory in the context of the history of physics. And what string theory is purported to be is a unification of physics. And to some extent, you can see the history of physics as the history of unification. Stand we shouldn't forget that that program of unification has been incredibly successful. And it began when Newton said, taking up what Galileo thought, which is, he said that the phenomena that occur on the earth can be explained with the same laws as the phenomena that occur in the heavens. And that seems obvious to us now, but it was a revolutionary thought at the time. Now, the idea that what explains that falling is the same thing that explains the planets going around the sun, namely gravity, is not an obvious one. It was a revolutionary idea. Because prior to Newton, people thought, well, the heavens are just obviously a different realm to the Earth. Why on Earth would we think they're the same? Newton wrote down the inverse square law of gravitation, and he used it to explain known laws about 
things happening on the Earth, like the fact that if you throw a projectile, it will follow a parabolic path. And the law of the pendulum, which Galileo had discovered, which says that the time period of a pendulum is independent of the mass of the bob that's moving. And also Galileo's law of freefall that says that if you drop a feather and a cannonball, they both experience the same acceleration due to gravity. The only reason the feather falls slower is because of air resistance, not because it's lighter. Now, those are all terrestrial phenomena that we, all, that we know about. But people also knew about planetary motion, and Kepler had written down laws about how the planets move. And Newton showed that the inverse square law of gravitation explains both the laws that we use to describe terrestrial phenomena that I've just mentioned, and the laws of planetary motion that Kepler had written down. So this is this incredible unification. Now, and a really important part of this story, which I want to come back to in relation to string theory, is this, that lots of people weren't convinced that merely unifying the phenomena in this way with this simple law of gravitation was sufficient for us to believe that law. So it's elegant and it gives us an explanation, but the problem with the theory of gravitation was that it said that bodies attract other bodies with this force that acts at a distance. And mostly French continental natural philosophers, physicists, thought that was really problematic and that wasn't the kind of explanation we should accept in science. And so they were very resistant to believing in Newtonian mechanics. Now, what convinced them, as they were convinced, that they should bite the bullet and accept the theory? Well, in part, it was that the theory predicted that the Earth should be fatter at the equator than at the poles. That, in other words, that the Earth wouldn't be a perfect sphere. And they sent an expedition to measure the true geometrical properties of the Earth. And when they found that it was in accordance with what Newton's theory predicted, then they went, oh, well, we don't like this theory, but we're going to accept it now. So Newton's theory had two features. It was unifying, and it gave us a beautiful explanation, and it brought together lots of things that we already knew. But it also made predictions about things that we didn't know, that we hadn't measured. If you talk to people in the 16th century, they knew about magnetism. They knew that the uh, compass points north. They knew that magnets could attract ferrous bodies. And they also knew something about electricity. And they had no idea there was any connection between these things whatsoever. And it was the experiments of Faraday that made people realize that magnetism and electricity were linked. And we know about that because we have dynamos, which use both electricity and magnetism. And Maxwell, the famous Scottish physicist of the 19th century, wrote down a theory of the electromagnetic field. And he achieved a further step of unification. Because he said, not only are electricity and magnetism linked, but in fact, light is a form of electromagnetism. And that was a completely radical thought. Who would think they were anything to do with each other? But that theory then predicted, well, that means that there'll be other kinds of radiation 
that aren't like light in that they're visible, but are like light in being electromagnetic, and we ought to be able to find them. And that's why we have radio waves and microwaves. So unification, electricity and magnetism and light are now put together. And then what Maxwell did, though, is he, he gave a unified theory of these things, but he still treated the electric field and the magnetic field as separate entities. And one of the things that Einstein did in the special theory of relativity is he said, the real thing isn't the electric field or the magnetic field. It's this combined electromagnetic entity, which can only be understood as something that's a four-dimensional rather than three-dimensional thing. And already, we've now got to the problem of mathematicization and abstraction. The fact that if I really want to explain to you what I've just said, then you need to do a course in four-dimensional geometry. You need to do a course in special relativity. Because I can gesture towards it, but what really can I do to explain it? I can just tell you. Look, take it from me. Einstein said, the true entity is the electromagnetic field. It's a four-dimensional thing. But that was a further step of unification, because now it said there isn't an electric field and magnetic field that's separate. There's just one thing. Around about that time, people discovered that they only knew half the truth about the forces in nature. Well, they discovered that we could use electromagnetism to understand chemical bonding, and so we didn't need chemical forces. And they discovered that we could use electromagnetism to understand how my nerves work. So I didn't need vital forces in my body explaining my physiology. But we couldn't explain radioactive decay using electromagnetism. And we already knew that there was gravity, and that was separate. So as we now think, there are four forces. There's electromagnetism, there's gravity, and there's the strong and weak nuclear forces. Now, when I was at university, my mathematics professor said, actually, there's two and a half fundamental forces. And the reason why that is, is because later in the 20th century, physicists combined the theory of electromagnetism with the theory of the weak nuclear force. And they made something called the electroweak theory. So now they're saying electromagnetism and the weak force, they're unified too. So we've got them, we've got gravity, and we've got the strong force. Well, that's three, not two and a half. And the reason for saying two and a half is because there's a way of unifying the weak force with the strong force. But when you do that, you can't unify it with electromagnetic at the same time. So it's two and a half. And the promise of string theory is the culmination of this program of unification, where we say we're going to have a single theory that's going to bring together those two and a half other forces. And that will be what underlies everything. So why do people believe in it? What's the motivation? Part of the motivation is that when you think of very small entities, you can pretend that they're not interacting with themselves. And you can just consider their interactions with each other. But everything that generates a field interacts with the field it itself generates. And so, very crudely speaking, if you think of particles as infinitesimally small, you get 
infinities in the interactions that you expect to have them to have with themselves. And what string theory does is it sort of imposes a cutoff. It says, no, they're not infinitesimally small. There's a finite limit to the size of these things. And they're not zero-dimensional, they're one-dimensional. What we think of as a particle is really a very tiny little string that's vibrating. And the different states of vibration it can be in correspond to different particle states. So string theory is only applicable at very, very high energies because we need to use more and more energy to probe things at a smaller and smaller level. The scale of these strings you can't really imagine because their length scale is something of the order of 1 times 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So think of 0. no 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 33 zeros and a 1 centimeters big. The difference in scale between a football pitch and an atom is roughly the same as the difference in scale between the atom and the subatomic constituents. So string theory is proposed, and it has some nice theoretical features. I hope you'll see the analogy with what I was saying about Newtonian gravitation before. What seems to fall out of string theory, just automatically, is that there will be gravitons which are associated with gravity and, and they're like the particles of the gravitational force. So it seems like gravity, the theory of gravity, of general relativity, will be recovered as a low energy limit of string theory. And let me just explain that idea of a low energy limit because it's incredibly important in physics. People think about the history of physics, they think, oh, we had Newton, we found out it was all wrong, and then we got quantum mechanics. Well, not really. And what we found out was that Newtonian mechanics had a domain of application, and it's very, very accurate in that domain of application. But when we go to even more accuracy, we find out that it's, it's incorrect. But it's still true at that scale. And so if you're an engineer, you do not concern yourself with quantum mechanics and general relativity at all. You just carry on using Newtonian gravitation because it's true for building bridges. So what happens in the history of physics when old theories get replaced by new ones is that the new theory has to contain the old theory as a limit. And it has to do that because the old theory was empirically supported and you need to get, get it back. You need to get back its predictions. So the theory of quantum electrodynamics has as a limit electromagnetism as written down by Maxwell. General relativity has as a limit Newtonian gravitation. In fact, when Einstein was developing general relativity, he put in by hand that he wanted the theory to give us back Newtonian gravitation and use that to get the theory out. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. 
It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, string theory says that the theories that we've got now are low energy limits of it. And as such, it seems to provide an explanation of why we have the theories that we have now. So, is that enough for us to believe it? Well, remember what I said about Newtonian gravitation. The French said, no, it's not enough to believe it that it explains and unifies what we already know. We want the theory to make a prediction of something that we don't already know, that we can independently test. And only if it does that, should we then believe it. Now, lots of people would say, I think, that that's the fundamental difference between science and other belief systems. New can produce explanations, they're cheap in a way. You know, if you know what you're trying to explain, you can posit things to explain it. But should we then believe the just-so story that you came up with? Well, surely that's not enough, right? What we want is that you tell us in advance something which we don't know whether it's true or not, and then if we make the experiment and it's confirmed, then that gives us reason to believe it. So, to give you a caricature, it's no good to explain the existence of the fossil record by positing that God put all those things there to test our faith. But you never would have suspected that those fossils were there. And we found them, and then you came up with this hypothesis to save your belief, right? So I often find myself defending, broadly speaking, you know, the scientific worldview, defending science against other forms of belief. And the thing that I always appeal to is prediction and testability. And people think that the theory of evolution doesn't make predictions, but it does. Darwin found a kind of orchid where the nectar and the pollen were right down inside. There was a really long pipe. And he predicted the existence of some insect with a proboscis that will be able to get in there and get that out. And they found one, right? There are many, many predictions from the theory of evolution. So what about string theory? Well, the problem is that it's about 40 years since string theory was first hypothesized. And in that time, it's been worked on by 90% of theoretical physicists working at the frontiers of fundamental physics. And yet during that time, it's so far not made any independently testable predictions. And let's just appreciate how, what, what the standard that we hold scientific theories to here, especially theories in physics, the idea is not, you know, you just predict this or that. The idea is you predict something to 10 decimal places. And you predict exactly what's going to happen. And general relativity does. It predicts the orbit of the planets to an incredible accuracy. Quantum electrodynamics predicts to an incredible accuracy the light that's emitted by atoms when you excite them. But string theory, so far, nothing like that. 
But that hasn't stopped lots of physicists saying this is scientific knowledge. And there's something that goes with string theory, which people also say we know, which is the idea of supersymmetry. And supersymmetry says, for all the particles in nature that we found, they should have a kind of twin. And none of those twin particles have been found. But supersymmetry has to be true for string theory to work. Now, for some people, that means there must be supersymmetry. And they reason as follows. String theory is true. String theory implies supersymmetry. Therefore, there's supersymmetry. So I think John Ellis has said this. We live in a supersymmetric universe. But there's no direct evidence of supersymmetry. There are other theories that posit supersymmetry other than string theory. And each time a new particle accelerator has been developed, there have been people who've said, now we're going to see the evidence because we finally got to the energy where supersymmetry should show up. And then when they haven't detected it, they've said, what we've learned is that supersymmetry only applies at an even higher energy than we thought. Now, to many people, that sounds like exactly the kind of saving your theory from refutation by making an arbitrary modification of it that characterizes not being scientific. So what's going on? Well, one thing that's going on is a big fight in theoretical physics. Physics is a vast subject, and most physicists don't work on fundamental physics at all. And the vast majority of them don't say anything about string theory, and they don't believe it. But in the, in the community of people working on fundamental physics, string theory is this, seems to have the status of truth or what we should believe. So some physicists wrote a letter to Nature saying, this is no good. You guys are forgetting what makes the scientific method the scientific method. You're forgetting what makes science different from other forms of belief. We don't want to say that string theory is unscientific. It's a really good hypothesis. It's worth working on. It's got a lot going for it. But we should distinguish between something like that, a hypothesis that has a lot going for it that we ought to work on, from what's known, what's, what, what's part of established scientific knowledge. And so, they say, you guys are doing a disservice to science by telling people that we know that there are strings, we know the world's made of strings, and for that matter, another example, telling people that there are parallel universes. Because one of the things that string theory seems to require, according to some people, is that there be many, many universes because there's so many different string theories. You've got to explain why we have the one that we have rather than all the others. And when they say, well, we don't just have this one. We have all the other ones too, but they're in other universes that we don't have access to. And there are other physicists who say, no, you can't say that. All you're doing now is metaphysical speculation. Those hypotheses do not have the same status as the hypothesis that the Earth goes around the sun. And so it's even led to physicists talking to philosophers about the scientific method. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
And there was a conference in Munich where physicists and philosophers got together to argue this issue out. In popular culture, in pu public discussion, we often talk about science as this monolithic entity. Right? But the laws of Newtonian mechanics are not like the research that was produced into diet last, last week. There's new science, which hasn't stood the test of time, and there's established science, which has survived for centuries rigorous testing in many, many different domains. And when you ask the question, should I believe this or not? Is this science or not? That's not really the only question you should ask. You should ask, okay, is this a bit of new science that has been around for a little while but doesn't have that much weight of evidence behind it? Or is this established, tried and tested science that lies at the heart of what we believe about the world? And so, in general, we need to be wary when a science popularizer comes along and says, science tells us this, that they're not just presenting a theory that has some credibility that's relatively new, may or may not be true. Right? And trading off the trust that we put, rightly, I think, in the other kind of science, the science that says the Earth goes round the sun and the heart is a pump and we need oxygen to breathe and, and so on. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Does string theory answer the question of what the universe is made of? Or do you think it's beyond the remit of what we call science? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. <laughs>